looking at this passage as well. So this morning we're, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about the resurrection because when you talk about heaven, um, you're, uh, you're, the only way to connect those dots for us is for there to be a resurrection. And the Bible teaches that at the second coming of Christ, our bodies will be resurrected and joined with our spirits and our soul, and, um, and we will be unified whole again. And as we looked at a little bit the last couple of weeks, um, we will be living the new heavens and the new earth. So this morning we're going to talk about uh, the resurrection. And to, and to get to our resurrection, we need to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Um, now, in, in your minds, you're, I, I mean, I hope when you hear that you don't you know, slump down, man. An Easter sermon in uh, October. Um, but that's really kind of what we need to do in order to kind of set this up. And, and here's what I would tell you. I uh, personally struggle more with the resurrection than any other doctrine. Um, and, and any other truth in Scripture. It, it would be the one that uh, perhaps over the course of my life as a believer is, causes me more doubt. And, and I don't know if that is true for you or not, um, but we're, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Not a common everyday occurrence which takes a fair amount of faith and belief for us. Uh, and so what I want to do this morning is, and, and here's the other thing, as you work your way through the New Testament, what you see over and over is Paul's reliance upon the resurrection and the other the other writers um, seem to always go back to the resurrection. It is the event. If, if the resurrection doesn't happen, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if there is no resurrection of the dead, if Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, then eat, drink, and be merry. And so he talks, uh, Marion read the passage for us uh, um, there at 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 as, as he read the end of that section uh, verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the victory that he's talking about there, if, 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 um, if the victory of death is gone, if death sting is gone, it's only gone because of the resurrection. It's not gone because Jesus died. If Jesus died and Jesus stays in the grave, there is no defeat of death. And so it's the resurrection that gives us that victory. And so that's why Paul begins 1 Corinthians 15. If you look over to verse 1, he says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, when you received, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I received what I passed on to you as of first importance. Christ died for our sin, according to the Scripture. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And then, and then he tells us about his appearing and all of that. But that is that core. 
of first importance. He died for our sins. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. If you've ever wondered, how did it, how have, how is it that the church crystallized um, our faith down to kind of that being the core? That's it. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, at the core of it all, without this, the engine doesn't work. Without this, our faith is futile. Without the resurrection, without Christ's sinless life, his death for our sin, his burial, and his resurrection, without that, it's pointless. And that's what the rest of chapter 15 is really kind of laying out as Paul talks about the resurrection. And so, you and I, and everybody who ever comes to faith, you're going to go through the gate of the resurrection. That is where our faith lies. Um, and, and that is the, the defeating blow of death is the resurrection of Christ from the grave. And so what I want to do this morning as we talk about resurrection matters, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to hopefully connect these dots for you to see what in the world this has to do with heaven uh, as we work our way through it this morning. But what I want to do is take you to Luke chapter 24. And, um, and we don't have time to, to read all of it. So what I'm going to do is just kind of help you uh, see the parts and pieces of it. And, um, and then we'll, we'll work our way uh, through Luke 24. Because Luke 24, I think, holds some keys for us. Right? So just as Paul would say to the Corinthians, look, it's, uh, it's no trouble for me to write these things to you again. Okay? In fact, it's for your good. A sermon on the resurrection is never a bad thing. And, uh, and if this is a place of doubt, I think Luke 24 gives us at least three really important kind of keys to hold on to. Three truths, three um, that, that kind of are doubt busters, if you want to think about them that way. And so in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 12, we, uh, we have the account of the women going to, to the grave. And, um, and upon arriving there at the grave... Uh, they find out that he's not here. Verse 6, the angels tell him he's not here. He's risen. Remember how he told you while um, he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Verse 8, then they remembered his words, and they went off and they told the other 11. And then we move to uh, verse 13. And your Bible probably has some of these headings, but that, that verse 13 begins the Emmaus Road portion. And the Emmaus Road portion um, has a couple of individuals that are walking on the road, and they're discussing everything that happened. And while they were there, verse 15, um, as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. And so they walk on the road to Emmaus. How many of you all have ever done an Emmaus walk. Oh, fair number of you. So uh, the Emmaus walk is really, in, really intended to be a discovery of Jesus, right? An, a, an encounter with Jesus. And this is where that idea comes from, because here they were, they were walking these disciples. And um, verse 17, they stood still, their faces down. Verse 18, one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and you don't know the things that have happened? And they go on and have this uh, discussion. And, and during the discussion, Jesus challenges them. 
And he says, verse 25, how foolish you are to, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was written in the scriptures concerning himself. So they go back. They have a meal. Jesus breaks bread. And as he's breaking bread, it says their eyes were up. They realized, they recognized, they were able to see him for who he was. And then verse 33, they got up, they went back to Jerusalem, and they shared what had happened. Verse 36, the next episode, Jesus and his disciples. You're familiar with this. Jesus appears to them. Peace be with you. Look at uh, they're, they're doubting, they're frightened, um, and he says, why do your doubts, why do doubts rise in your minds? Okay, that should be our first clue. So when someone tells me, no doubts, that's the verse that comes to my mind. Because here are the apostles, the disciples, They have just gone through all of these events. They've walked with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They lived with Jesus. They spent three years with him. They they saw it all. They saw the miracles. They saw everything Jesus did. He dies. He's resurrected. He appears to them. And when Jesus challenges them and says, look, it's me, how does he do it? He says, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? I don't know about you, but they had about a thousand more reasons to believe, if you want to think of it that way, than I do. He was standing in front of them. He goes on. What does he do? He says, look, hands, my feet. It's I myself, right? What is he doing? He's working to convince them it's him. Because they didn't believe that it was him. And you and I don't doubt. Moves on. Do you have anything here to eat? Verse 41, verse 42, they gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and he ate it in their presence. And then as you move on, verse 45, then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them this is what was risen. You see, they still they still weren't getting it. And so Jesus has to open their minds for them to understand what had happened and what was taking place and for them to believe that he was standing before them when they saw them him with their own two eyes. And then the very end is the ascension, verse 50. Um, and when he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. All right, so here's what I want to do. First, let's talk about the resurrection matters. And what I want you to see is that Jesus' resurrection really changed everything for them. And And there are several things in this passage that you and I can hold on to. They're, they're doubt, 
doubt-busting parts of this, right? Because one of the things that is always, uh, I mean, if you go out and you just, you know, if, if you go to Barnes & Noble and you go to the spiritual section and you grab a, a, just any generic book on Jesus off of that and it talks about the resurrection, it's just going to generally spiritualize all of it. It's going to say, look, you know, um, all of these parts and pieces, uh, uh, you know, the, the gospel, the good news, you know, Jesus' life, they're all just, um, you know, good spiritual lessons for us to help us, to help you be a better you and to, to be a better citizen and, and all of that. But when you read Luke 24, what you find out is this isn't just some spiritualization. I mean, tell me, how do you spiritualize? Uh, what is the spiritual truth hidden in? Do you have anything to eat? I'd like to have some fish. I heard somebody talk about it. Jesus wanted to have fish and chips with his disciples. How do you spiritualize that? What is the spiritual truth in that? I mean, I guess you could say eat together. I don't know. But there are several things here. Here's the first one, and you've, you've probably often heard this one, is that, the, that Luke, as he's recounting the story, recounts for us that women were the first ones at the tomb. Now, this right here, if you're writing a a story to spiritualize Jesus, if you're writing a story to try and convince people down the road and people in their generation, I mean, that, that would have been, you know, the early readers. If you're trying to convince them that this Jesus figure is larger than life, a sort of Zeus character, if you will, of the Greek gods, what do you do? Well, I can tell you right out of the gate, what you don't do is have as your primary witnesses, the initial primary witnesses to the resurrection aren't going to be women. And here's why. Because in that day and age, their testimony was a mere zero they couldn't, te- in, in both Roman courts and Jewish courts, they, they could not offer testimony. Their testimony wouldn't have been seen as valid. So in that day and time, their testimony was a big goose egg. And so to have women as your primary witnesses of the event of the resurrection would have been a, a non-starter. It would have gotten, it would have advanced the ball and the story of the resurrection nowhere. That's the first point. The fact that women were there, they were the ones who saw and beheld. Look, when they get back to the eleven and they tell them about what they've seen, what what do the eleven say? Look at it. They look at them and they say, verse 11, it says, but they did not believe the women because their words seem to them like nonsense. That is the initial reaction of the disciples to those ladies who went and saw. That right there is is a doubt buster for me. Why would the biblical author, why would Luke, why would the, if we're trying to create a story, it's believable, why would you have them be your first responders? It doesn't make sense. Here's the second thing. The second part, and this is a smallish point, but a point nonetheless. And what Luke does is, 
And the section on the road to Emmaus is he drops a name. And the name is Cleopas. Anybody know who Cleopas is? And neither do I. We don't know who Cleopas is. That's actually part of the point. Cleopas was an early eyewitness to Jesus, to his resurrection. And Luke mentions him. Luke puts his name in the account as if somebody talked about it and they said, it's, it's like you and I writing a research paper. What do we do? We we drop a name or we have a conversation with someone and, and we drop a name in the conversation to give credibility to our story, to give credibility to what has taken place. And so we use footnotes. This is, if you will, a kind of footnote for the early reader. Oh, Cleopas. See, they, the early reader, the early hearer would have probably known who this Cleopas was. He, he, for a generation or two, would have been known as an eyewitness to the account. And so Luke drops his name and puts his name in there as one you could go to. Look, if you're doubting, if you're struggling, ask Cleopas. He saw him. He interacted with him. He had uh, uh, this, this happening with him on the road to Emmaus, and his story is here. And so Luke goes about dropping these footnotes that down the road are meaningless. To us, we don't know who Cleopas is. But to the early hearer, to the one that you know Luke was uh, most prominently writing to, he's thinking to himself, I'll insert Cleopas. Everybody knows who Cleopas is. And, um, and, and they can reference back to him and they can go talk with him if they want to know more about his story. But if you're trying to create this larger than life, right? Cleopas probably isn't going to do it for you in the long run. Here's the third thing. At the very end of the story, at the ascension, we read this. While he was blessing them, he left them and he was taken up to heaven. Verse 52 tells us, then they worshipped him. Then they worshipped him. If you go and you read there, if you think about the development of um, larger than life figures, right? If you think about a change in the way that people uh, look at figures and, and, and the way in which societal change takes place, one of the things that, that happens is it doesn't happen right away. Things don't just change overnight. They take long periods of time. So, for instance, in the story, as we're thinking about this Jesus figure, if Luke wants us to see and he wants us here to see and to think, look, this Jesus is, is an amazing figure. What you don't do is talk about how uh, rapidly these things happen. But in the story, that's exactly what takes place. It's not the way things take place in space and time. It takes eons. It takes long years in order for the tale to develop and for the story to, to um, become larger than life. But what we find is in the actual account... Jesus right away to Jewish men became larger than life. The last people on the planet 
that there would have been that would have worshipped a man were Jewish men. They just wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't even speak his name. They wouldn't even speak God's name. But for them now to come along and to enter into the worship of Jesus as a man is huge. And the fact that that's inserted into the story right away just tells us this account is an eyewitness account. These are the things that were happening because you don't write that into the story to help the story along. To, to a certain degree, the fact that those Jewish men, as they saw the ascension, worshipped Jesus, there's almost a sense in which that would have said to the culture around them, there's an issue here. To us, it says, they saw Jesus for who he was, the God-man, and they worshipped him. Now let's, as you work through the account in Luke, those, those three things at the very least are myth busters. But there's more here. And the more here is that Jesus' resurrection is the key for understanding the rest of Scripture. And Jesus tells this to them several times. The first out of the gate is verse 25. When he has the interaction with the men on the road to Emmaus, he says to them, How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them all that was said in Scripture concerning what? Himself. So this resurrection that Jesus has had from the dead is now the key which helps him help them understand all of Scripture. It unlocks for them the scriptural truths that they would have known quite instinctively. And then he does it again down in verse 44. Um, he says, uh, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled. That is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets. Now he's speaking directly to the disciples. And he's telling them, listen, everything that was written back there, all of that was about me. And so he's helping them to see that he is the key that unlocks all of Scripture. And if he unlocks all of Scripture, then he, then he is unlocking for us. He is showing us that indeed He is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but by Him. And Paul tells us, as we've already looked at in Romans or in 1 Corinthians 15, that if Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, if that event didn't happen, then your faith and my faith is in vain. And he says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If the resurrection didn't happen, then everything in Scripture falls apart. Does that blow your mind? Here's the reality. The Ten Commandments are pointless. They're useless. Good ethical rules. Every other major world religion has them. You don't need the Ten Commandments to get there. If the resurrection didn't happen, 
your face and my face is pointless. That's what Paul says. And that's what Jesus essentially says to both the guys on the road to Emmaus and his disciples. At the very end, before he leaves them, he helps them to see that his life, death, and resurrection are the point of it all. And here's the final kind of connecting point for us. Jesus' resurrection is as certain as ours. That's the other part of what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15, is that he connects our resurrection from the dead and Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And he says Jesus is a first fruits. So, this next Sunday, October 14th, is an anniversary of sorts. Anybody know? October 14th, 1947. Does that help anybody? All right. Military men, let me see your hands. Okay. And women. Sorry. I just mean people. Uh, military folks. How about Air Force folks? Anybody? Yeah? member of you? Come on, I know you pilot types. Anybody? No. Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier on October 4th, 1947. A major event in the history of aviation. He broke the sound barrier, and, and so Chuck Yeager... Go back and you read through military history. You read through through uh, aviation history. That was monumental for him to climb down into the X-1 to be dropped from the wing of what B-24 or whatever, and and straight and level he breaks the sound barrier. Everybody who has ever broken the sound barrier since then owes what has happened to Chuck Yeager. Because without his first flight, without going and doing that, without all of the physics and all that stuff involved and, and them being able to show that they could do it, no one breaks the sound barrier. And so if you've broken the sound barrier, and I have, uh, some of you have, um, it's a, a very boring moment, by the way. Like You don't really know that you've just broken the sound barrier. Everybody down below you does. But... Having done that, you're connected to Chuck Yeager because he was the first, right? He was the pioneer. He was the one that did it. And, and what the Bible says is that Jesus was a first fruit. He was our Chuck Yeager. And, and because of his resurrection, you will be resurrected. And, and as you're resurrected, you owe it to Christ because he broke. Now, He broke it in this way. He was the first to be resurrected from the dead and to be yours and mine representative. There's debate about whether or not Chuck Yeager was the first one to break the sound barrier. Hold on. Where's Arn? Is Arn here? No? Oh, Arn! Dittmar! There was a Dittmar, a German, who they say may have broken the sound barrier going like this really fast 
in the early, uh, in 1944 in a, in a German plane. But he wasn't our representative, right? He, he, didn't, he didn't do it straight and level, if you will. And, and here's the point. Here's the idea. Jesus was our representative. Everything about his life. Others, there were others that were resurrected. Lazarus came out of the tomb. But he wasn't for you and he wasn't for me. Jesus was our representative. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians one more time and we'll finish right here. And I want you to see this. And perhaps it's never rung in your ear the way it will when you see Paul say it. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42. He says, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. Sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And then look at verse 45. So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The first Adam was your representative in the Garden of Eden in death. The last Adam was Jesus. And He is your representative and mine in the resurrection. And Paul says, because that last Adam resurrected from the dead, you and I are caught up with Him. Paul takes this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. And he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, seated with Him in the heavenly realms. Since you've been resurrected with Christ. Here's the idea. Let me just close with this. Your final resurrection awaits If you die before Christ comes, your resurrection from the dead is in the future. But even now, Paul says, you participate in that resurrection because you're in Christ. And Christ has already died and been raised. And He has already crushed death. And so there's a sense in which you and I already experience life in a way that we wouldn't experience it had Jesus' resurrection not already happened. And that's kind of a mind-blowing idea, but what it means is this. Is that when we talked about this last week in, in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says, right, since we are a new creation in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. See, you and I have already died in part. The old part of us has died, and the new part of us is alive but only as we're connected to Christ. And then we have the hope of that future resurrection, which is the final undoing of it all and the connecting together of everything that Christ has accomplished for us. And that awaits us at the final resurrection. Let me pray for us. Father, you're good to us. Thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for working in us what is pleasing to you. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Father, we struggle to, we struggle with it, to understand it, and to 
trust in it. And yet it is such an essential part of what you've done for us. Give us eyes to see the glorious resurrection of Christ. Give us hearts to believe it. And more than that, Father, let us even this day participate in it as the old dies and the new is raised to life. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.